Lord, we just come before you and we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to see how much you care for us and that, that disobedience has consequences as we go through this chapter. And we ask you to just bless it and guide us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ezekiel chapter 16. And we're going to go back to verse 6 to put the, where we're going to go into in context. We're going to be starting at verse 15, but just want to read some context. And when I, talking about God, passed by you and saw you polluted in your own blood, I said unto you, when you were in your blood, live. Yea, I said unto you, when you were in your own blood, live. I have caused you to multiply as the bud of the field, and you have increased and waxed great. And you are come to excellent ornaments. Your breasts are fashioned, your hair is grown, whereas you were naked and bare. Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, your time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yea, I swear unto you and entered into a covenant with you, saith, says the Lord God. And you became mine. Then washed I you in water. Yea, thoroughly washed away your blood from you. And I anointed you with oil, and I clothed you also with embroidered work, and shod you with badger skin. And I girded you about with fine linen, and covered you with silk. I decked you also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon your hands, and a chain upon your neck. And I put a jewel on your forehead, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown upon your head. You were th Thus you were decked with gold and silver. Your raiment was fine linen and silk and embroidered work. You did eat fine flour and honey and oil and have, was exceedingly beautiful and you did prosper into a kingdom. And your renown went forth among the heathen for your beauty. And it was through my comeliness which I had put upon you, says the Lord. So we start out and just to recap where we left off last week. God beautified Israel. He gave them all the blessings. He supplied everything. Now we're going to look at what Israel did with those blessings. Verse 15. But you did trust in your own beauty and played the harlot because of your renown and poured out your fornications on everyone that passed by. His it was. And your garments you did take and decked the high places with diverse colors and played the harlot thereupon. And like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. You also have taken your fair jewels and of my gold and my silver, which I gave you and made to yourself images of men and did commit whoredom with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense upon them. My meat also, which I gave you, fine flour and oil and honey, wherefore I fed you. You have seen, even set it before them as a sweet savor. Thus it was, saith the Lord. Moreover, you have taken your sons and your daughters, whom you have borne unto me, and though these you have sacrificed unto to be devoured. It is... Is this your whoredoms a small matter, that you have slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire of, for them? And in all your in abominations and your whoredoms, you have not remembered the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and were polluted in your own blood. And it came to pass after all your wickedness, woe, woe unto you, says the Lord. So we're going to stop there for a little bit. So we see God blessed Israel. He cleaned up Israel. He gave blessings. He, he put fine garments. He gave them meat, uh, washed with water, which we talked about, the washing of the water of the word, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the clothing on it. And then what they did in verse 15, but you did trust in your own beauty. You put confidence in, in what you think you had. And you played the harlot because of your renown and poured out fornications on everyone that passed by. His it was. So God says you started to trust in, in your beauty. This is a problem sometimes that people, at least those who name the name of Christ have, they start trusting in their righteousness. You know, the righteousness that comes from God and we start, oftentimes we'll start to trust in it. Especially people who have grown up in a church and think that they, you know, think somehow they're better than the rest because they never sin, you know, never went into the deep sins, and they can sometimes stand aloof and say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm better. And here he's saying, you put your trust in your own beauty, and you played the harlot because of your renown or your name, your reputation, and this idea of playing the harlot. We talked a little bit about that before. You know, how often do we sin against God and 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 turn against God and, and play with other gods. 
And it's so easy to, you know, I want to be careful even as I say that, it's easy to be worshiping other gods and to have some god before you. And how do, can you tell who your god really is? What do you think about the most? What do you talk about the most? If you find yourself talking about things other than God, then you probably have a different God. If you look and more than 50% of your conversation is about some other topic, that's probably your God. But people generally, at some point in, in some point in their life at least, will have some time when they've slipped and let some other God come into their life. You know, it's very, very hard not to. I had a time when work, work was had become an idol to me. I, I was a workaholic. And li- literally, and it could be just about anything. If you, we're not just talking about sin, sins that happen, but, you know, but we look at it. What do you spend most of your time doing? What do you spend most of your time talking about it? Uh, you get some people who television is definitely a god in their life. They'll could, the minute they get home, they start watching television from the time they get home to the time they go, go to bed. And when they're, when they're not watching television, they're talking about the shows that they watched. Okay? Have they picked up a Bible? Have they talked to God? Have they prayed? Probably not. They may call themselves a Christian, but who is their God? Some people will be talking about sports all the time. You know, whatever sport it is they like, that's all they ever talk about. And I'm not saying you never talk about sports, you never watch TV, but if more than 50% of your time is invested in any one thing, and it's not God, you need to take a real serious look at your life and say, do I, is that a God in my life? Is this something that I have placed above everything else in my life? <clears throat> Most of the time, many times we don't. Because we get, we get all hyper, you know, we don't bow down to idols, I don't bow down to a, to a golden, golden uh, statue. No, but you may bow down all the time to your sports team. You know, if you got to get home because the, the whoever is playing tonight, I've got to get home for that game, you know, and, and get angry if somebody you know, holds you up and you can't get home for that game. And, and the next day you've got to watch the game and the next, you know, or the three days later, whatever, however the games are, and you get angry if people keep you from that game. That team is probably, or that game is probably raising up to an idol status. And this is what I say for people. If you're a Christian, you need to look at where are you spending your money? Where, where are you spending your time? Who do you talk about? And again, I've never, I'm not saying you have to spend all your money on God. You have to spend all your time talking about God. But it really becomes critical. If you can go an entire day without talking about God, and you want to say that he's your God, you probably have an issue there that he's not your God. If you can go, you know, talk with somebody for hours on end and never mention, and the topic of God never comes up, you probably don't have God. You know, some people, their past is their God. They're always reminiscing about their past, always talking. They're living in their past. God has, you know, they're, they're not, they've never gotten victory. They've never released the past. Some people, it's the future. <laughs> they're always geared into the future. But here it's saying, you've, you've taken away, I've given you all this stuff. And he says, you've played the prostitute, the harlot. And, you, and literally, you look at this one and it says, you poured out your fornications on everyone that passed by. And this is really talking about Israel specifically because Israel was, when they went into idolatry worship, they worshiped the golden calf, Estorah, Baal, Baalim, all of the gods in that area they, went, they followed after. And God's saying, you're following everybody but me, and you're trying to include me in this list. And God is a jealous God. He's not going to allow us to worship multiple gods. I think that they would have been stronger than that because they were, I mean, they're raised from like a very young age. How is that That's just the point I was going to say. Is it's no different from us because we do the same thing. You know, we, we quickly turn from God. We turn, quickly don't recognize his blessings. We quickly... You know, isolate ourselves from what he's doing. We forget to give him thanks for what we're doing. So the question really comes down to at some point, many of these Jews were not true believers. Okay, they were just there because that's where the nation was. Same thing with people who, there are many who call themselves Christians who aren't Christians because they have never put trust in God. They say I'm a, they're a Christian, they show up on Sunday morning services. And I can't tell you how many people over the years that in their 50s, 60s, 70s all of a sudden realize that they don't know the God 
that they have been in a church for all their life. They have just been righteous. They've done good, they've done good things. They've given, probably given money to the church. They read their Bible daily. They go to church every time the doors are open and all of a sudden they realize, I don't know this God that I supposedly have been talking about. And it's a very sad place to be. And Jesus himself said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And he lists off a whole bunch of, you know, things that are, you know, righteous things. You know, I visited the poor. I fed the hungry. I did this. And, I, and what does he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Because you never put your trust in him. You never accept him as your Lord and Savior. You did lots of good things. You did lots of, lots of things that were quote-unquote, looked like they were Christian, but you never put your faith in God. And it's a very critical place. When you put your faith in God, you know that you've put your faith in God. When you, are, when you have a relationship with him, you know that you have a relationship with him. He, he talks with you. He leads you. He guides you. He, he gives you the peace that passes understanding. He teaches you to love people. He teaches you to be forgiving. He teaches you to be obedient, not through struggles and strifes, but teaches you to be obedient because he changes you and many of these people that are in Israel never knew God never knew him and Paul was very big on this there's Jews that are Jews in name only and those who are actual followers of God and we want to be we always want to be followers of God clothed in his righteousness clothed in him knowing that he is the only way that I can please God and verse 16 says, and you take your garments, that you, and your garments you did take, and you decked your high places with diverse colors, and played the harlot thereupon. And like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. And high places, when they refer to high places, those are altars to the, to the gods. Usually on the top of hills or up in the mountains. Uh, the two things that you'll read in, in the Old Testament are high places and the groves. And the groves were a place where they would build a totem pole and then they would plant trees around it. And those were usually fertility gods were worshipped in the groves. So they would end up having orgies inside the, the ring of trees in front of their totem, totem fertility god. And then they had the high places which were where they were usually on a hill or a mountain where they would worship. The, the, the way they worshipped the fertility gods were with orgies. <laughs> one of the baser things that, that humans want to do and when you when you build an idol up and a, and a false god you usually take something that is a, a sin and you know is a sin so you turn it into a virtue for for the god you're going to worship and the way you worship that god is to participate in that activity so for fertility gods it was always involved sex for if it was a god that was into uh, the various gods for thieves, then the way you worship that god was you stole things and presented it to that, to that god. Uh, so whatever, whatever your god represented, you, you worship them through the sin that was, that was being elevated by that god. All idolatry worship goes back to the base nature of man. Nothing new under the sun. So there's really nothing different in what we do, just some, some, some of it is how we do it may, may, may differ. Uh, today you can entertain yourself with the pornography on the internet, which a while back ago you had to go somewhere and purchase it. But if you go back into the Roman Empire, their pornography was actually pictures all over the town and you couldn't go anywhere. And it was just as vile as what we see today. And much of it was live in the window places and everything. So it was, there's nothing new understand how we deliver it can be changed. Well, it's just, all of it was just as bad. You know, we've dug up places and, and, been, and people have been shocked at what they, what they have actually found That's out there. But we see God saying, you've taken and decorated your high places with my, the stuff that I provided you. You know, you think back, this is nothing new for them either because you go all the way back to Mount Sinai. That Moses up on the mountain and, they, and he comes down and what are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf with an orgy going on in the middle of all of that. Okay, so nothing new, nothing new to them, and 800 years later, they're still doing the same thing. But the majority of those people, like the people with the golden cap, they didn't really buy into what Moses was. They were just along because they had, they had no They were Jews. They were Jews. They, 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 God had led them out. So, but they were seeing things. They were, they were 
drawn to God, but never made a commitment to him. Many people in churches are drawn to God, but haven't made a commitment to him. And this is why we tell people that we put our trust in Jesus. The one thing I can tell you is that I know that I'm a Christian because I know God and, I've, and he's led me in everything that I've done and I know that I've put my full trust in him. And this is the big point. Do you trust God? And this is what most people have trouble with. They go, I know God, I know Jesus. Well, James tells us, you do well. The demons believe and tremble. They're not saved. They're not, and they never will be. Uh, the point is, are we trusting him? And what is trust? Putting all of your faith and confidence in him. It's the idea of, and I love using a chair because it's a good one. You know, these chairs are very sturdy and almost everybody in here will say, yes, I trust sitting down in these chairs and we'll sit down in them. Okay. Now, if you didn't, you looked at the chair and we had some rickety old chair sitting over there and it looks like it's falling apart. You'd look at that chair and say, I don't think I'm going to sit in that chair. It's a chair. Okay. I recognize it's a chair. It's supposed to hold, hold, hold people up. But until you actually sit down in it, you don't, you're not putting your trust in it. And this is the way Jesus is. He says you need to put your full trust, your full confidence in him. And what will that mean? Well, number one, it will mean childlike trust at first. You just put your trust in him. And, you know, and that doesn't mean you're going to put your whole faith in him at first, but you've got to start coming to the place where he says, I want you to do this. And that's when you know you're at the place where you're following God, when he says he asks you to do something that is totally insane in your mind. <laughs> And you say, okay, God, I'm going to trust that you're going to be keep it, that you're going to be taking care of me, and you just relax in him. You fall into him, actually. You don't even just relax. You just fall into his arms and say, God, I am yours to do with as you want. Now, that doesn't mean we won't make mistakes in, in following him, but this is when he comes up and he says, okay, I want you to do this. And you go, God, that doesn't make any sense. And he goes, I want you to do it. Yeah, I didn't ask you if you made sense. I didn't ask you if you think it's good. I said, do it. And sometimes that may be very strange. I was in a church where they were doing a fundraiser and the pastor challenged people to give 90% for, for, uh, to offering for, for, the, for one week. And I'm going, okay, God, are we doing that? And sure enough, he said yes, and we gave the 90%. And that was, that was a matter of trust. God, will you honor? Can we live on 10% of this money? for the rest of this week. Well, I have absolute confidence that God will always meet my needs when I, when I so really, surrender I to him. No, because I turn around and go, God, are we going to do this? Yeah. And even if, Still between you and God. You're right. Still between you and God. Now, should everybody give 90%? Probably not. But, you know, it was... I'm not even saying that the 90% thing. Yeah. It could be anything. But when God, when, when you're reading God's word and he speaks to you, you have to be able to say, yes, God, I trust you and I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. And that shows your whole faith. Your whole faith. There, and because I've grown to where I have grown, there are things I used to be able to do 20, 30 years ago that I would never do, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would not have made the decision that I had done because it showed a lack of faith in God. And I now have grown to a place where I say, I would not have done that. And it's little things, nothing, nothing big, nothing even sinful. Just looking back and saying, God, I did this and it was not putting faith in you. And an example in point, when I lost my job three, uh, four years ago, and we were making very little money. Everybody was telling me, go on welfare, go on welfare, go on welfare. You know, you, you, you can do it. And I'm going, no, I'm going to put my trust in God. And God always, always came through. Now, would it have been wrong to have gone on welfare? No, it wouldn't have been wrong. It would have been for me because God didn't put, me, put it in my heart to. But because he says, who do you trust? Is your trust in the government or is your trust in him? So I said, God, I'm going to put my trust in you. Now, was it, would it have been wrong to do it? No, the government said I could have. It wouldn't have been wrong. You know, but again, because God 
said, do this, I put my trust and go, God, I'm going to trust in you. Now, what does that show? That shows you the development of where, you've, where you are with God. If you're always looking for something, somebody or something other than God to go to first, it's like people will say, well, I've tried everything else. I might as well pray and come to God. Well, no, the first thing we should be doing is going to God and saying, God, what do you want me to do? Now, he might take you into welfare or he might take you into, you know, doing, you know, doing this, that, or the other thing. But we start with God and say, God, I'm putting my trust in you. What do you want me to do? And that is when we start learning to trust. And this is when we start looking at him and saying, God, don't understand this, but you're in control. God, I don't know what's going on, but you're in control. You get into that Job situation where everything seems to be going wrong. You go, God, you're trying to teach me something or trying to teach somebody else something, but I'm going to be faithful to you. So, but... But the key to that is turning to him and saying, God, I put all my trust in you. Now, that does not mean, and I've said this, when I didn't have that job, it didn't mean I was just sitting on my porch waiting for God to dump money over my head. He gave me many opportunities to make 100 bucks here, 100 bucks there, you know, 80 bucks here. Uh, and money also came in every once in a while. Just out of the blue, money would come my way. Okay, but... Where is your faith? What is it that you're trying to do? When God says, go talk to somebody, you're going, okay, God, no, no, not that person. I can't talk to that person. Nope, nope, I can't do that, God. Or do we go up and we talk to him? When God says to do something, are we willing to do it? Are we looking for what he's doing and joining him? Or are we just saying, God, I'm over here. Come and join me. I'm, I'm walking down this path. You join me, God. It, we, it all depends where is our faith? What are we looking to do? All right, verse 17, you have taken your fair jewels and my gold and my silver, which I gave you, and you made yourself images of men and did commit whoredoms with them. So he goes, again, you're taking all my stuff. I gave you all this stuff, and you're using it to worship other things. And, and it says, you took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you made my set my oil and my in incense before them, my meat also, which I gave you, fine flour and oil, honey, thereof I fed you, you have even set it before a sweet them as a sweet savor, thus saith the Lord God. So he's saying you're taking all my stuff and worshiping things other than God. And this is easy for us to do. I have seen it many, many times, and I've shared this before. You, get, you see people who get really blessed by God. They've been walking with God. They've been honoring him. They get blessed by God. And they get their motorcycle and their car and their RV and their, and their boats and their, their summer home and whatever else. And the next thing you know, you're not seeing them in church. Because you have all the stuff. You've got to use it, right? <laughs> and you know, this is what I said. I would love to have a boat. I just don't know when I'd ever use it because I'm so busy serving God. So I guess he'll have to give me a boat when I get to heaven. You know, but, uh, but he's saying, I've given you all this stuff and you're using it to worship other things. And literally, in his case, they were taking the gold and silver and making idols and, and all of that. He says, then, then he starts getting in. It was bad enough that they were just worshiping other gods. And then verse 20, moreover, you have taken your sons and your daughters whom you have borne unto me and you have, and these you have sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this your whoredom a small matter? that you have slain my children and devoured them in the midst to pass through the fire? In other words, they're taking their children and offering them to the gods. And this is something that happened, pass through the fire, the, the worship of Dagon, where they put the babies in the arms of the altar, of the, of the statue, and the fire would burn inside it, and they would roll the baby down into the fire from the, from the arms of Dagon. And it says, in, the, in verse 20, it says, is this your whoredoms a small matter? Are your sins, are your, are your, your, your walking away from God just a small thing? This is probably the biggest danger we have in our day and age because I've heard many people go, well, if I sin, God's going to forgive me. Well, you know what? That is a true statement. But if you're going out purposely sinning, you've got other problems in, in, your, in your life than, than that. If I fall and I sin, God will forgive me. If I'm purposely going out and sinning, 
and I'm one of his children, he's going to forgive me. But the bigger question is, am I one of his children? If I can go out and purposely, continuously sin. I can tell you the handful of times that I have purposely gone out and sinned, there's been no enjoyment. I've been under such conviction that there was no enjoyment and there was no fun in it, no, 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 nothing that was pleasure. And I had to go back and God and go, God, I am really sorry. I was really dumb. You know, you told me not, you told me not to do it and I did it anyway. You can make an honest mistake and you can find yourself in a, in a bad place. This is what happened when I walked away from the church when I got into a workaholism. I never even noticed what I was doing. I just found myself a couple years later and I go thinking I hadn't been in church for, for two years. And, you know, was it any less of a problem? Not really, but it wasn't quite as blatant as some of the things that I've gone out and gone, I'm just going to sin because I want to do that today. That's, that is really bad because you're making a conscious decision to do something. Now, if you're going along and you kind of find yourself someplace, uh, there's a kind of a two-way street. You, really weren't, you weren't walking with God strong enough to keep you out of it, but you know, so you did a lot of you, a lot of little things to get you get you there. But there are times when you just kind of find yourself in a in the wrong place, kind of find yourself thinking the wrong thoughts because you're not concentrating on God, and you just repent and you get out of it. And even if you purposely sin, you can still repent and be forgiven. The purpose is, like Paul said, we don't go out and purposely sin just so God will forgive us. If we're, if we're doing that, we're in a dangerous position with God. You know, we're in a dangerous relationship with God. If I can just think, uh, well, I can just go out and sin all I want and God's going to forgive me. We may not have the relationship with God that we should have. Because you should be very much convicted and not even wanting to do those sins over and over again like that. And this is what it tells us in the New Testament. If you can sin and continually sin... <laughs> Then you have to kind of look at your relationship with God and say, what is my relationship? Do I know him? Is he strong? Right. Consequences aren't the same, but it is a sin. And this is why the more we walk with God, we give, the longer we walk with God, the more we have the external sins out of our life in many cases. If you've walked with God long enough, you're not going out and committing adultery and fornication. You're probably not drinking and drugging. But then you start getting into the really hard stuff. The stuff that nobody knows is what do you think about? What do you, what, you know, how are you thinking? What, you know, am I thinking about committing adultery all the time, but I'm not doing it, so I feel, I feel good and nobody really knows where I'm at. That's where it really gets tough with the Christian walk. Well, that's just human nature, too. You know, you look, you, thinking about it will eventually not be enough. It's the same thing with pornography. People who get into pornography eventually will act out some activities with it, whether it's fornication or adultery or worse, because they have filled their minds so much and it be, they become jaded with the just think, seeing and thinking about it that they go, I've got to go do it. And that's true of any sin. That's what you're saying. Any sin will eventually work itself out of you if you think about it long enough because we get jaded with the mental part of it and want to participate. Right, jaded or blase. The person who is a th thinking about the perfect crime and they keep thinking about it, keep thinking about it, eventually will probably try it because they think they've worked out all the, all the angles out and think they can get away with it. It's partly human nature, partly the, the way we are. We'll get jaded. We've got to eventually, which is why the Bible very clearly tells us we become like what we worship. If our thinking process is always on some sin, we will act out that sin because technically we're worshiping it in our heart. If we're truly worshiping God, he will come out of us because we will become more like him because he is the one that our mind is on all the time. And this is why it's critical. Where is our mind? Where are our emotions in our life? Are we truly focused on God or are we focused somewhere else? And if we're focused somewhere else, it, that sinful nature will eventually come out. This is why people who will have really foul language, 
usually aren't thinking about God. They're not thinking about the good and the righteous and the holy because otherwise they would be saying, oh, praise God, and building people up and edifying them because that is the language that God would bring out of them. If they're constantly cursing and negative, they're probably not focused on God the way they need to be because it's not who's coming out of them. Out of the abundance of our heart, we speak and we do because whatever our mind's on, we will act out eventually. Verse 20, In all your abominations and your whoredoms, you have not remembered the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and polluted in your own blood. And it came to pass after your wickedness, woe, woe unto you, says the Lord. He says, you don't remember where you came from. This is something we always have to be careful of as Christians. Remember where we came from. Not idolize it, not dwell in it, but we need to remember. You know, the, the statement, there before the grace of God go I, is a very strong statement, especially if you've ever been there in the first place. You know, we see you know, who, who are some of the worst people to be around? Ex-smokers. If you're a smoker, you don't want to be around ex-smokers. If you're a, you know, a drinker, you don't really want to be around ex-drinkers. They're usually very hard on those who are still in that sin. And you can be gone with any sin. Somebody who's an adulterer and somebody who got victory over it are very critical of those because you're not as strong as I are. You, ha um, you, haven't, you haven't gotten the victory yet. And we can get very self-righteous. Sanctimonious, self-righteous, whatever term you want to use. But we need to be very careful about that. And how do we do that? We remember. Oh, I, I had my problems. I've had those problems. And when we can remember that and we focus on God, his love starts pouring out of us. You know, I'm an ex-drinker, and I'm, I'm highly critical of people that can't control their liquor. That's, that's exactly the problem. That's the way I got victory, and usually you've got the problem right there. Is if it's you that did it anyway, you've got a problem. It has to be God who did it for you. But you've got to look at it and say, I had that problem. I used to be stuck in it. I want to have care and pity for these people and, and desire to lift them up. And... It's very easy for those of us who've been walking with God for a long time to go, well, what's your problem? You can't tell the truth. You, you're, you're into drugs. You're into alcohol. You're into fornication, adultery, you know, whatever it might be. And we can be very judgmental. And we've got to be very careful about that. Because if you are judgmental against somebody, you will drive them away from God, not draw them to him. And we know that's true because what happens if somebody goes after you in an area that you're weak in? Your defenses go up immediately and saying, who are you to be talking to me like that? And so we need to be very careful that we're being loving and kind to people. Not saying that their sin is okay. That I'm not, we're not ever going to try that, go that route. But we're also not to attack them and judge them for it. Because you know what? When you point your finger at somebody for their sin, for a particular sin that you may not have that particular problem, you can know that the other three fingers pointing back at you are pointing back to sins that you do have that you should be paying attention to. Because they're not going to respond if you sit there and beat them over the head with their sin. It's not my business, leave it alone. And God will convict them. This is the point that we always have to remember. God's grace is what changes people's lives. His love is what changes people's lives. I have not seen very many people who got pounded with love that changed their, uh, pounded with law that changed their life. When they've been given grace and love, they change. Billy? We need to be able to tell them that things are sin and be bold enough to tell them that things are sin. But that's as much as I'm going to go. When I stand in front of the church, I'm not telling, pointing people out, you are a sinner, you're doing this. I'm going, this is a sin. I am not going to not call things a sin. But I'm also not going to say you're a dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinner because you do this. But I do want you to understand you're a sinner. Because if you don't understand you're a sinner, you're never going to repent. And that's the first step always in being able to bring somebody to salvation is they've got to find, realize that they're a sinner. Now, does that mean if I'm talking to somebody who's into homosexuality that I'm going to try to convince them that homosexuality is a sin? Absolutely not. Because they're not going to buy into it if they're, if they're not a Christian. But I can tell them, have you ever told a lie? Oh, yeah, everybody's told a lie, and everybody knows that telling a lie is wrong. There's, I have not met anybody who doesn't know that telling a lie is not wrong. 
Now, there are people who are pathological liars who don't recognize that their half-truths are lies, okay? But they do know that an outright direct lie is, a, is wrong. Now, there are people who will give you shades of, shades of truth and, and not, not think that they're lying because, well, it's got 55% truth in that statement, so it must be true. Yeah, omission is a lie, but they're not gonna they're not going to acknowledge it. So I can you know, we when we're talking to people, let's find the places that they know are a sin. You know, Jesus said that if you've been angry with somebody without reason, that he elevates that to murder. Have you ever gotten so mad that you were ready to murder and, and kept yourself just away from it? Have you looked lustfully as a person? And many times in our day and age you can get into fornication and adultery without even having to go with the, the look because it is so common to hook up and God calls out uh, fornication. Sometimes you just, it's just uh, a thought enters your head if you just see somebody walk by you know, it's like, wow. Yeah, but you're not accountable for that initial thought. You're accountable for what you do with the thought. If you entertain the thought, you know, you walk past somebody who's half, half, half clad and you get this quick, quick thought in your mind, that's one thing. But to sit there and go, wow, what, couldn't we just get together and have a fun time? No, that's taking it <laughs> and entertaining on, entertaining on the thought is where the problem is. But again, that momentary thought is not the sin. It's the entertaining of the thought that goes beyond, that goes into the sin. Because it is our human nature to desire. <laughs> and then verse 34, he says, These, and it came to pass after all your wickedness. And then God kind of puts a little woe, woe, or a very passionate uh, cry of despair here unto you says the Lord you have gone so bad that I am very passionately concerned have you ever been so caring for somebody usually our own family where you care so much for them and you're you're sick because of what they are doing that's bad and you, and you can just see where they're going and you're like, oh, if you only could see if you could only see it from my you know only see what I can see coming your way you know, you would repent and you'd get rid of it and you're, and you're just very concerned about where they're going. Mothers are really famous for this, watching their kids going down and, and fathers can do it too a lot, but especially moms have that. Uh, and sometimes as parents, we might try to stop our kids from hitting rock bottom and it, what they really need to do is hit rock bottom. And why do we want to stop it? Because we really don't want to see them in pain. But, you know, ultimately we should realize that that pain is going to be short term only this lifetime. If we let them get to the bottom and, and turn to God, they've got an eternity with God to make up for whatever rock bottom hits. And yet oftentimes, and I've seen it happen over and over, people have stopped their kids from hitting rock bottom and then wondering why their kids never come to God. And it's like, well, let the kid hit the bottom Bounce off the bottom and get scraped along the, scraped along the road a little bit, and they'll either totally deny him or they'll come to him. All right, verse 24. That you have also built unto you eminent places and have made a high place in every street. You have built your high places at every head of the way. You have made your beauty to be abhorred and have opened your feet to everyone that passed by and multiplied your whoredoms. You have committed... Fornication with the Egyptians, your neighbors, great in the flesh, and have increased your whoredoms and provoked me to anger. Behold, therefore, I have stretched out my hand over you and have diminished your ordinary food and delivered you unto the will of them that hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, which are ashamed of your lewd ways. So let's look at these ones because this has a little bit in it. You have built unto yourself eminent places and have made you high places in every street. This is eminent places are really fancy uh, buildings. And it says you built high places at the head of every, in, in every street. He's talking about how wicked they have become to the point where there's more worship of the gods than there is God. Every street has an idol. Every street has a, has a temple. Every street. And this is not usually what we think about when we think about Jerusalem. And yet... Ezekiel's preaching in a day when Jerusalem is about to get totally wiped out and be eliminated. And he says, you've got idols everywhere. You've got altars everywhere. You've built these up. And it says, you've multiplied your whoredoms. You have built high places at every head of the way. You have made your beauty to be abhorred. This is kind of a very strong statement. 
even though you're very beautiful, people are abhorring you. And I don't know if you've ever met somebody who has a lot of beauty, but their soul and their whole being is totally ugly. They're just, you, you, you're drawn to their beauty, but then when you get anywhere near them, it's like, ugh, you know, how ugly can this person really be? And this is what he's saying. You started out beautiful, but you're showing yourself to be greatly ugly, and people abhor you. They can't stand being around you. You have opened your feet to everyone that passes by and multiplied your whoredoms. And we're not going to go too graphically with this, but he's literally saying that they've opened themselves wide <laughs> to anybody who passes by. Uh, spread their legs is literally what they're saying. <laughs> okay, and they put it in a little bit of pretty terms, but in the Hebrew it is very graphic. This is poetic, that's what I'm saying. And in Hebrew it is very cut and dry. It is that, it's, it's more graphic than even what, he is, what, he, what the NIV says. <laughs> yes, he's calling them very filthy whores. You're, you're, spreading your legs to, you're spreading your legs to anybody who comes around is literally what he's saying in this verse. Then it says in verse 26, we're going to have the same, same very graphic, in Hebrew, the same very graphic picture. You have committed fornication with the Egyptians, your neighbors. Great is the flesh that has increased your whoredom to provoke your anger. And here he's talking about erection, basically. In, in the Hebrew, he's talking about, you know, you're, again, it's very graphic. In, in the picture of this, and he's saying you're 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 going out to the Egyptians, your your hated enemy, the one that the one that had you in slavery for hundreds of years. You're going out to them, and worshiping their gods. And it says, therefore, I have stretched out my hand over you, and have diminished or made small or restrained your ordinary food, and delivered you to the will of them that hate you. When we choose to disobey God, He will allow us to suffer the consequences of those actions and those that hate you will be the ones that will rule over you and, and make the punishment and we see this over and over in the scriptures when the israelites would sin in the time of the judges they would be conquered by somebody and put under a vassal state when all through history we see judgment falling upon sin and God making things difficult. And we've all gone through it in our own life. When we've done things that deserve punishment and we fail to repent, God will make our life difficult. Now, we won't actually physically go under the slavery of somebody, but we might be under the slavery of that sin. This is where alcohol, uh, alcohol will do to the drunk. It'll, it'll rule over them. Uh, people who get into following different sins will be ruled over by that sin or by people within that sin. And if you go long enough, you get ruled over people by people as well that pushing you down and keeping you down until you repent. And this is what God says. Your enemies, I'm going to let your enemies rule over you because of how far down you're going. And then this is kind of an interesting statement at the very end of that. The daughters of the Philistines, which are ashamed of your lewd ways. Now think about this. We've talked about the Philistines. Why were the Philistines judged? Because their ways were so awful that God said, I'm judging them. Okay? Remember we talked about that when Israel went into the promised land, the, those tribes there were being punished because of their sexual immorality, their worship of the, of the gods, to the point where all they had was a word for sex. They had no sub-levels of sex. Okay, and that means everything from regular, straight, heterosexual uh, sex all the way down through all the various uh, defilements that there are today. Yeah, the same thing we're doing today. And we're getting close to the point where we're, we're getting rid of all the, def the negative defiling derogatory names for sex and saying it's just sex. We're coming to the same place that these places were. Okay, nothing new under the sun. We're returning right back to what has always existed. Probably what was happening in the days of Noah. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. We're very close to that. How much longer we have till God comes and takes the church out and starts, starts the seven years of judgment upon this world? I don't know. I'd hate to think how bad things have to get. If we're not right on the cusp of it now, and there's another 50 or 60 years, I don't want to be alive back when, that, when it gets that bad. But nothing new. 
Nothing new. He says, you're getting so bad that those awful, terrible sinners are looking at you and saying that you're bad. And it's really bad when sinners look at you and say you're doing bad. Okay? When somebody who is already doing something looks at you and say, man, you are, you are over the top in where you're at is a bit, really bad place to be. And this is what he's saying. These Philistines, these Philistines that I have judged for their misbehavior are looking at you and saying, how, much, how far can you go down? You're, you're so far down, you're, they're looking at you as being lewd, obnoxious, uh, sickening. Uh, you know, all that goes in with that, going in, into that statement. Pretty much. Not, not unusual on all, all this stuff because it was a very debased uh, place. Well, because they're getting so far from God. Without God, we will live the way our flesh wants to live and have no problem with it. And our flesh is evil. It really is. Our desires, God says that we are desperately wicked. Who, who can know it? And without God putting a change in our life, we will live out what the flesh wants to live out. Which is why we're in a very dangerous place in our day and age where the, all of the psychologists and sociologists and the world is telling us, well, man is basically good. And if we just let them do what they want, they will do what is good. Well, the more we free man up to do what he wants, the more we see them going into evil. Because that is what we want to do. In spite of what the educated people are trying to tell us, we want to do evil. And we know that as Christians, if we don't really focus on God, we want, we want to and will do evil. Because that is who we are in our flesh. And this is the battle we face as Christians all the time. God, saying, God working in us to be good and the flesh working in us to be bad. Where do we put our focus? Who, who's got the attention? Who's got the rule in our life at the time? When God has rule, we will generally be obedient to him. The flesh will still pop up its head and, and, and drag us down, but we will never be beyond the flesh dragging us down. And the day we think we are, look out, you're going to be drugged down pretty quick because you're not focused on God saying, God, I need your strength to get through this day because without you, I can do nothing. And that means anything good, anything victory over sin is part of that I can do all things. And without him, I can do nothing. Without him, I will sin. Plain and simple. It's a guarantee if I'm walking without him that I will sin. Sad thing is even when I am walking with him, I probably will find myself doing some sins. But I will do less sins. Right, he's convicting you and he's giving you the strength to be victorious. And that is the most important thing. And this is why we always have to remember, it's him that does everything. Be careful when you think that you stand, lest you fall, because you'll stop paying attention to God and you'll fall flat on your face. I'll fall flat on my face when I forget that, that it's God who's doing it. And I can guarantee you I'll fall flat on my face when I forget that he's doing it. If I take my focus off of him at any time, I'll fall flat on my face. It's very important that we keep our minds and eyes focused on him. Because without him, we will fail. So the main message, we're all sinners, deserve punishment. Jesus died for our sin. Our sin is covered by Jesus' blood if we believe that we're victorious. Mm -hmm. Pretty much wraps it up good. But that's how we always have to live. And that's also what we have to do when we're looking at others around us. They're sinners, they deserve punishment, they need Jesus. I cannot afford to get angry at people because they're not living a righteous lifestyle. Because they can't without God. I also can't afford to get angry with Christians who aren't living a godly lifestyle because they need to grow and learn to follow him better. I just need to pray for them, love them, maybe, maybe twist, you know, point out to them that they're in the wrong path if I do it lovingly and carefully. And say, hey, you know, that's really not the way you need, should be talking. And I, you all have had me do this at some point. And, you know, at times, you know, let's not talk about that. Let's, let's build them up. Let's edify. Let's, let's change the way we're thinking. 
Why? Because we need to be thinking in terms of God's righteousness and holiness and love toward people and, that lift, and lifting them up. Lifting them up, not criticizing them, but doing a lot of praying for people. And as I've said many times, if you're not praying for somebody, you definitely have no business talking about their problems because you're not loving them enough to pray for them, whether they're lost or saved. But we pray for somebody and we pray for somebody, then you at least have a basis to be able to say, I've been really concerned about you and I've seen this in your life and I've been really praying for it. You know, I just want to let you know that I've been praying and hoping that you'll get the victory in this area. Or if you've got a nice relationship with them, you can actually you know, say, hey, you know, you've been doing this and I really have been concerned and I just want to let you know, I've been, you know that I'm concerned and been praying for you. But it all comes down to, am I praying for somebody? Am I really caring enough to be able to say, I love you enough that I want to see you do better? And I've been taking it to the one who can really make the change, and that's God. Because, and he'll change. And most importantly, even if it's a lost person, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for their victory in an area of their life and their salvation. It may take 30 or 40 years, but God can do the work. And the greatest example that I can give you is my dad, my, my great-grandmother prayed for him at third church for decades <laughs> before he became a Christian. But God can answer those prayers if we're just persistent enough to keep praying. For those of us with children who are not following God and, and going on, we need to just pray for our kids and lift them up. I heard a very interesting show on uh, Family Talk this week about, about mothers praying, a ministry of, to get mothers to pray for their kids. And this one kid goes, my mother never stopped praying for me and I made my life miserable, but now I'm a Christian. So we want to keep that in mind. No matter how far off our kids are, we want to pray for them. Because the only one that can really make the change is God. If we, if we pound on them over the gospel message, you know, when you're when you going to go to church, when you're going to follow God, all we'll do is drive them away. Believe me, I know that. I have a child that I've done that to. That I kept hounding him about, you know, when is he going to make his decisions? So pretty much he doesn't talk to me anymore. You know, I've made my mistakes. I know what I'm talking about when I say these. We need to pray for these kids. We need to really pray for them because, for one thing, we probably aren't going to be the one that reaches our children. Because they're going to look at you and say, well, you made plenty of mistakes. It'll take somebody else coming into their life to, to bring them. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try to share God with them and encourage them. But it probably won't be us that brings them back when they're away from God. We pray for them. We take the opportunities gently that God gives us. But we pray that God brings somebody into their life to bring them around. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity you have. Lord, we ask that you keep us away from purposely walking away from you and even finding ourselves walking away from you, Lord. Help us to always remember where we were and, and, and what you brought us from so that we can remember all that you've done for us. In your son's precious name, amen.